Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 135 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Alyssa Nichol. Hello, hello. Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Ward Bell. Hello out there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out about JS Remote Conf, which is uh, very soon or just got over. I don't know which because we're like three or four weeks ahead. Anyway, uh, you can get tickets and either watch or the not. talks that already happened or you can get tickets and watch the talks and be in the chat room and in the Slack chat and all the other good stuff that we do for these things. So anyway, uh, go check those out. Um, this week, we're going to talk about mean. And Joe is mean or is the expert on mean or something like that. When Joe gets mean, that's the title. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried about this talk because I've never seen Joe get mean. And... I know. It is, it's actually a rare thing. <laughs> no, Joe so, really uh, gets mean. All right, Let's so can I, get a little, uh, can I get a little uh, vulnerable here? Oh, of course you can. <laughs> I lost... can. We'll never tell. Okay, yeah, we'll never tell. There's only like 10,000 people that are going to know. I lost my temper like four weeks ago. And it's like the first time I've lost my temper in about 10 years. Right, like, and was it really at, a, at, a, at people? Yes, it was at my daughter, actually. Oh, shocker. <laughs> I know. Because can you believe that a teenage child could get a parent to lose their temperature, I, temper? I don't, I don't believe it. I, I thought I felt the disturbance in the force. Yeah, yeah, there was. So as a result, my daughter now has a brand new door on her bedroom. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my. You know, you stronger so, hinges. Is that to keep you out? Has she got it, like, blocked now? Or uh, No, I, it, it was a very long story, but the result, the end result was the door got broken by myself. Well, it so needed, I had it, it, needed it. I'm it sure needed that door, uh, that door really it. needed a good working out. So the net result, the, the, the moral of that story is Joe does get mean sometimes. <laughs> and not just with uh, with Angular stacks. <laughs> not just with Angular stacks, right. no. All right, Joe. Well, we're going to resist asking what she did, even though that's what. Or, or what the door did. I mean, maybe he was like doing house repairs and just lost it. Uh, she <laughs> she cut her hair. That's what she did. She cut her hair. <laughs> she cut her hair. Oh my, that is. I know it doesn't it, it doesn't seem that bad, but it just happens to be like a thing with me. She cut her hair and she cut it in a way that was pretty extreme, and I wasn't happy about it. And we we talked, and the talking escalated, and then the door <laughs> suffered the the okay. path. All right, now I'm uncomfortable. Let's talk about <laughs> JavaScript. <laughs> no, now I want to know what kind of hair cut you. Did you get a reverse mohawk or what? Oh no, you wouldn't think it's that extreme. Remember, I'm a pretty conservative guy, right? Oh, goodness. <laughs> you wouldn't think it's. You, you'll get to see it a couple of months, Ward. Here. Okay, here. well, it'll grow out. That's the thing. Yep, it will. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk about the other kind of mean. <laughs> we went way, way off out there. <laughs> yeah, we went way off topic. Okay, so... so. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. We went way, way off out there. <laughs> yeah, we went way off topic. Okay, so so mean in this case, it must be an acronym for something, Joe. Uh, it it is an acronym for something. It, it's an acronym for Mongo, Express, Angular, and Node. 
which is it's like the only stack that really has a great acronym, right? None of the other stacks have good acronyms. Yeah. Currently, I can't even think of another stack acronym. Can you? Well, there was LAMP. LAMP. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, okay. At least it was a word. It was a boring word. Like, could you pick a bo more boring word than LAMP? Right? Like, <laughs> snot, you know? Even snot is less boring than LAMP. But uh, no, there is, I don't think there, anything else has an acronym. People have tried, but no, nothing else really has an acronym. But it's like such a common stack, right? That it deserved to have an acronym and a decent one at that. Right. And, and that's good. And at some point I'll ask you about COA, which would really ah. totally destroy the, the E in there. Yes, totally uh, destroy the E. It would make it un uh, you know, unpronounceable. But we'll come back to that. Um, so so Mongo is still a thing, huh? Mongo is still a <laughs> thing. Yeah, I know. You know I mean, it was it was so like 2015 or 14 for a while. Yeah, so I know. Was... Get a real database, you hippie. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, you know, as I, I was I'm building a, an actual production project here, right? And I needed a database to store things. And my first uh, thought was to use the stuff that I'm comfortable with, right? And I needed it has to all go online. I got to go and put this online. I'm not going to run my own server, so I don't want to do anything heavy like SQL Server or Oracle. Uh, not that I would have normally chosen those anyway, but I didn't want to do any of those. And um, Rethink, you know, has been so popular lately, but they've had these business problems recently. And so I wasn't really necessarily comfortable jumping on board that ship. I, I'm also not familiar with it, which is a, probably about two thirds of the reason I didn't choose Rethink. I was, I'm pretty comfortable with Firebase. So I thought about doing Firebase. Unfortunately, the uh, Google led me astray when it came to Firebase. What do you mean? What does that mean? Okay, so there is a product called Angular Fire, right? I have even put out a course on, on this product for and it's, this is for angular js which is for those of you for the everybody that isn't one of the four of us who doesn't know that angular js actually means angular one it's a secret code word Shh, don't tell anybody it's a code word angular js means angular one that's the official terminology now so it was they have this product for angular js called angular fire it was awesome really great easy to hook up and just made developing apps with the firebase back back end you know a breeze but there's a new version. Uh, they named, they titled it Angular Fire 2, which turned out to be a huge mistake because we're not putting version numbers on things anymore. So I don't know what they're doing for their name. But for now, but if you just Google Angular Fire 2, you get led to this angularfire2.io, I think, that pulls up this one page that has some documentation that's quite out of date, and it doesn't reference or point to anything else. Right? So I tried to walk through their steps, and nothing worked, and there was no documentation on the actual API. So I ended up just giving up and thought, well, this isn't going over. So I actually really did intend to build this app with a Firebase background, but Google led me astray and led me there, which was this like dead end. I didn't, uh, but you didn't know the internet had dead ends, but it does have dead ends. Yeah, it must be a documentation dead end because I can think of at least two um, uh, projects that I'm in, you know, acquainted with that are Firebase and Angular. Yeah, so I should have reached out to, uh, I have a, um, David East is a good friend of mine and he's a really nice guy, so I assume if anybody reached out to him over Twitter, he would answer them. But I ultimately later on reached out to him and said, hey, is the product in like early beta? And he says, no, I'd say it's like in late beta. And, or maybe he said mid beta. I'm not sure. But anyway, it turns out I was like looking at the entirely wrong documentation. Now you got to go to the GitHub site for Angular yeah. Fire 2. And there read me links to all the official documentation. It just the Google discoverability was isn't quite there yet. And that particular website, which he it's like, oh, I got to turn that off. It's, you know, it's this out of date, dead end. So it was Google and that particular website that led me astray. 
Well, can I just say this is a common problem for all of us in this field where Google leads you to resources that describe products in versions that are completely unrelated to what you're doing. Right. It's very, very easy to get uh, start following Stack Overflow and other things that describe things that aren't what you're doing. And, and so we all have to be ready for that. That's part of the life we've chosen. Right. Right. Absolutely. Anyway, you, you moved on. And you picked up something that hasn't changed in the last six weeks called me, Mango. And, uh, and it doesn't have any, you know, it doesn't have any secret Angular sauce either. And is there or is there a or is there a Angular for Mongo out there? No, like in this case, I don't know, maybe maybe there are some people that have tried to put together, you know, a few little things here and there. But in the case of Firebase, it really makes a lot of sense to have a very specific uh, hookup to your front end. Right. But for Mongo, because you're just making just simple restful calls. Uh, unlike Firebase, which is all real time, right? Then just any REST API is going to be fine to access it. So, so, so step back for a second, because so much of what you're now saying um, gets to the heart of it, which is what is the problem you're trying to solve? I mean, if you needed real time and push and things like that, then then you would yeah. move harder. But there must be what was the problem set that led you to to look at one of these databases and, and so that we we could know. I mean. Well, the application I put together is really quite tiny. Right? It's a really small application. So uh, designing the database in a NoSQL manner was extremely easy, very natural. And I mean, I'm duplicating the data quite a bit to make the uh, reads and to make the reads really uh, efficient as to ask the right questions to the database. So really, any NoSQL database, based on the design that I came up with, any NoSQL database would have worked great. But I didn't actually have any of that need for hey, somebody else is going to change something. I need to get a quick push. You know, another user needs to have that update, updated data pushed out to them. Right? Mm -hmm. It's more of your typical site where you hit the page and you, what comes up is current the moment it comes up. And if 20 or 30 seconds later or a couple minutes later, it's now slightly out of date, that's okay. Right? The user is not really going to suffer from it. And the, the model, the, the data model that you're um, following is, is rather, relatively simple? Yeah, you know, if this was like a relational database, it'd be probably like three tables uh, where I ended up with like five to make it a little bit easier to ask questions of the database. But that's because I designed it sort of, at a no, you know, I made it optimized for a NoSQL um, solution. But yeah, really small, quite small. Yeah, so you've got five collections and yeah. and you got a fair amount of, uh, there's an element in a collection, is it an object graph or is it a single type or? What kind, of, uh, what kind of objects you're throwing into those collections? Yeah, one of those one of those is kind of the core one. So it's kind of have like ten attributes to it, nothing really deep. And then all the other ones have like three attributes. They're mostly like lookups back to, you know, the original one. So a uh, little bit, just very small object graphs, nothing deep, right? Very simple, easy type application. Okay. Um, and what kinds of queries do you have to do against it? So, like, you're, there's a main query where you get to the central page and you're going to pull up a list of articles. But other, but you might ask other questions. Like, articles can have it's it's a website that displays articles, right? And articles can have tags on them. So you might decide to filter by the tags, or articles can have an author. You might filter by you know one of the attributes of it. But you also might go and say, I want to see all the articles by this one specific author. So that was the whole reason to have another collection just for authors, so that um, we could get a quick. I could ask an easy question of, hey, what are all the articles that a given author has? Right. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. I'll save my question. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask if you have had a lot of like Mongo experience before, and that's why this was, you know, it's not a super deep dive into your data. It's just like a couple simple models. So is that why you're like, oh, yeah, Mongo? Or 
did it just like the mean stack sound super cool? Like, why'd you decide to eventually go that way? I would say I have a very moderate amount of experience with the mean stack, right? I've written a few moderate, medium sized, mostly like demo size applications with the mm. mean stack. So I'm comfortable enough with it, right? I've seen it before. I think that what um, made me a lot more comfortable with this was actually when I put together my, I put together two courses on uh, Firebase, one on just Firebase in general, and one on Angular Fire. And when I did that, I worked a bit with uh, the Firebase team, specifically David East, and talked about things. And he was, he was saying, you know, anybody can go and read a blog post about how to make a query against Firebase, right? But what is difficult to really get a good grasp on is how to model data, right? So he says, if you started off with like a relational version of whatever the databases you're going to use and showed how to change it to be a NoSQL orient, you know, document oriented, Firebase is really just a document database as well, a document oriented uh, design and show that transition and really contrast and compare and let people see that you really do, you can't just take a relational database and just say, well, this has five tables, so I'm gonna have five collections in my NoSQL version of it, right? There's, it's, that, it does not work that way. You really have to be thinking about what are the questions I'm going to ask of my database, right? And you have to optimize your collections in that manner for NoSQL to work at all. If you're, if you're not gonna do that, you might as well just be using a relational database. So all the advantages of NoSQL have to do with thinking about how am I accessing this data? Do I need to optimize it for writes? Or usually you want to optimize for reads and you don't want to optimize for writes. Generally, that's true. Not all cases, but most applications you want to optimize for the reads, in which case you want to create collections to make it easy to ask questions, right? And you want to kind of be thinking through in advance the questions you're going to ask. And as you think up a new question, that might cause you to create a new collection and have to du duplicate your data in another way. And so I was going through that course, it really made me a lot more comfortable with the whole NoSQL setup. And I feel like that has benefited me a lot and made me feel more comfortable saying, I'm going to throw together a mean application, mean stack application, and know that my database design is, it may not be the best possible design, right? Somebody with tons and thousands of more hours of experience would potentially produce something better, but I'm going to produce something that I feel good about and know that's not going to be, have any major weaknesses, right? Hmm. So has it been going really well? Are you like deep into the weeds now with it or done maybe? No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm probably like a fifth of the way done. So I'm mostly <laughs> putting together, like I've been putting together the walking skeleton and just basic functionality of it. All the, I've, I've still got at least three quarters of the application left to build, if not okay. that. Your so time table is, oh, is hilarious to me because it's one fifth. I'm like, that's, I would have never thought of that fraction to describe something. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I was trying to think, is it three quarters or maybe a little smaller, right? Seven eighths? <laughs> One eighth. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking in uh, socket sizes. So uh, what would you say that you're, you know, in, in the building of an application, I always felt like there was more time devoted to certain aspects of it than others. And would you, would you say that the, the data side of it has pretty much settled uh, in your mind and that your the remaining uh, four-fifths are devoted to the user interaction? Or, or would you say that, no, it's kind of evenly distributed across the problem? I think so. I might end up finding that there's a need for more functionality I didn't anticipate and have to go back and remodel some of the data. But I think mostly the data side has settled and now it's a matter of coding various things together, right? Um, making the UI really work well. I, that's to me, at least in an application this size, that's going to be a big bulk of what is what I'm going to spend my time on. That's certainly always been my experience is that, that uh, the other stuff t calms down. Yeah. Um, but I do want to ask you some data questions. So um, yes, the NoSQL move says I'm happy to duplicate data and I'm not going to worry about 
I'm going to solve data integrity problems in a, uh, in a different way. And for you, that would be that you've got, if I understand correctly, you have authors in two places. Joe Eames, the author, appears in the article section and in the uh, author's collection. Is that correct? Yeah. So if Joe changes his name to Sally, which could happen any day, I've been hearing, I've been hearing about, uh, about you. It's in the works. It's in the works. Um, how are you going to, you know, is this, are you saying that this is such a, that the likelihood that you're going to have to go around and do this cleanup is so low for this application that really it's just a matter of, you know, well, how do, how do you address that? Like if you had a, an author's form and you were allowing them to change the name and you were changing it from Joe to Sally, how do you structure your data flow such that the, the, uh, um, the Mongo database is maintained? And are you worried about momentary loss of integrity? Because after all, as people may or may not know, um, you cannot lock both collections while you make these changes. You can't lock right. the articles collection and the others. So there'll be this moment in time where mm -hmm. you're Sally in the authors, maybe, and you're still Joe back in the documents. And, and like, do you know that you don't have to care? How are you managing? How are you thinking those things through? Because that's what a NoSQL person has to think through, right? Right. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, the very first thing you've got to be willing to accept is that at some point, um, unless you make your data most, you know, basically write only and never, well, sorry, unless you don't make your data editable, right? It's insert only, but not editable, which most, for most applications, that's not going to work. In my case, can an author change their name? The articles are about authors. Uh, I suppose technically that might be functionality I'd add. It wouldn't necessarily be core functionality, but it's a really good example of a problem because like you said, the names are in both places and in the author's collection, it's only there once. So updating the Joe to Sally is super simple. You make one small request, one small write, and now it's updated. But in the list of articles, each article has a, a property that is the name of the author that authored the article. So the minute I make that change, until I go through the entire list of articles, find all the ones that say Joe Eames and change the word Joe to Sally, it is out of date. So it's that eventual consistency. And you must be willing to face that if you are going to use a NoSQL database, right? The, you have to accept that as one of the trade-offs. Eventual consistency happens with NoSQL. So if you cannot stand it, then you got to use relational database. If you absolutely cannot tolerate that, you must use a relational database. But then all the things that you would get out of NoSQL, you can't get out of, well, all the, the things you can get out of NoSQL, you can't get out of relational, you can't get anymore, right? So you have to be willing to accept that. Yeah, and, and also with it, it's not just the acceptance of eventual consistency. You also, as you say, you have to write the code. Yeah. Which you don't in, in, which you don't in a SQL, in a relational yeah. uh, model, you don't have to write the code that updates everything because everything's pointers to everything else. Oh, you yeah. literally have to write, you have to think, how am I going to sweep the, the uh, articles to update all those things in a non-transactional way, um, uh, update all those Joes to Sally, um, and again, in your example, it's a, in your particular case, it's probably, you can say, I looked at the business problem. It's a non-problem for me. This is great. But people who are trying to understand this choice for themselves, um, really have to think this through, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're, we're talking about the case of, Hey, I've actually made a change and caused this is inconsistency. But you also got to think through the fact that sometimes when you're writing, you can be writing a piece of data. And that might cause you to need to write that same data to one or two or three or four more collections. So you've got, from the coding standpoint, right, you're no longer just saying, hey, I'm going to insert in this one table. Now you've got to insert in two, three, four collections potentially, maybe maybe five, who knows, depending, depends on your data design, right? But you've got to now write that one, you've written in one piece of data, but you've got to now 
have uh, cascading rights to a bunch exactly. of places. You, you got to write all that code yourself. It's not automatic. No, that it's not automatic. Easy. And how would you even know if you've got a big team working on this? You've got the big team of Joe. But mm -hmm. if you had the big team working on this and they're trying to evolve it, it's very easy for these uh, to miss one of the the collections, Rocks. right? Yeah. So, for example, I'll bet your author's collection has also has duplicates. It has some kind of reference to which documents that author has produced. Is that possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Right. So you could easily add a new document for Joe, but forget to add it to the Joe collection. It's right. not likely in such a small application, but as applications get big and the number of collections get big and the number of people working in and maintaining it gets big, you have this exploding parts challenge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if you talk about like, I mean, again, this is a very simple data design. I ended up with, uh, I think, five collections, right? It's a really small application, like three pages. Three, three real screens. So in a larger application, this would be, you know, p potentially uh, at least geometrically exploded, if not exponentially exploded, right? Yeah. Now, in reality, you know, there are really clumps, and it's not it's not, yeah. not as bad as we're painting it. But but it's one of those things that you know, in the whole fanfare around NoSQL, for a long time, people just just kind of pretended this didn't exist, and it's there's a reason. Uh, now it's my turn to play the old man, right? <laughs> but but you know I I cut my teeth before there were relational databases when in mm -hmm. fact uh, everything was NoSQL because but they didn't have they didn't call it NoSQL because there was NoSQL to be <laughs> not a SQL about it was ISAM and VSAM and things like that and we, and hi, and uh, hierarchical and network databases and and. We had all those. We, we just assumed all the problems that we're describing now as a NoSQL. They were part of our world. That's what you had to do. And the refreshing thing about SQL when it came along was, uh, and you, you just have to imagine what it was like to have the, you know, the scales drop from your eyes when somebody said that you didn't have to write all that code and keep worrying about going around and, and updating everything. How amazing it was that there was this relational theory and this normalization that allowed you to suddenly drop having to write miles and miles of code and all those bugs and stuff like that. It was a revelation when SQL came along. And here we are throwing it away again. <laughs> Uh -huh. And then all of a sudden, everybody's saying, wait a second, yeah, that's exactly. a terrible idea. I've got much better ideas, right? Uh, gosh, it's too funny. Um, you know, so, and I think, look, can yeah. I, I want to pitch in something here. Not that I'm not a fan of NoSQL. I think NoSQL is great. I don't necessarily, by any means, think that NoSQL is better than relational, but uh, by any means. It just so happens that it's easier for me to put together a NoSQL database for a little small project that I want to make public than it is to put together a relational database that I want to make public. If there was a really great open source relational database that was easy to um, put together as a backend with JavaScript and Node and host and, uh, somewhere, I would certainly consider it. But given that, right, there is this whole aspect of the fact of NoSQL is kind of a reaction to what I call, well, I don't necessarily have a word for it, but I sometimes call tell people it's like the Twitter effect, right, or the Facebook effect, right? We've got Facebook that's produced React, and uh, NoSQL has sort of come out of this. There are these huge companies, mostly in Silicon Valley, with these huge websites that are processing so much data, so many transactions like Twitter. If you look at the number of uh, tweets per second, transactions per second that's going on during like the World Cup during their peak times, right? The volume is unbelievable, and it's something that a relational database could never handle, right? You could never handle this on a relational database. So things like NoSQL are a must for people like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, things like React are a must for Facebook. There's no way that they could ever have used Angular One, Angular JS, on Facebook. It just the performance was never there. 
They never could have gotten it out of it. So they had to produce it. But I do, I'm going to go back onto the old man, like get off my lawn kids, right? Sometimes we see a big, huge company solving a problem that big, huge companies have, like huge, massive scale problems. And we think, well, that's the right solution then. I've got to go use that. But the reality <laughs> is, you know, I'm going to see, if I'm lucky, I'll see five transactions per second on this website, right? So it, I could I could handle this out of text files that I'm writing to and reading from <laughs> yeah. if I really wanted to. And so I don't, I'm not a fan of, hey, this Twitter did this now. And so obviously this is the right way to build an application because either one, it just automatically makes it the right way or it allows you to scale it. And I'm pretty sure that this business idea that I've got is going to be bigger than Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm not a fan of that sort of stuff. So I don't think that NoSQL is the answer. Mm. So that's the whole Mongo side of it. Are you doing anything funky on the front end? Because you both are like going on and on about like backing the data modeling. Uh, and I'm just like, well, yeah, CSS news maybe? Well, we aren't even there, Alyssa. He hasn't <laughs> left the server yet. He hasn't talked about Y Express. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm. back end. Mm. <laughs> Yep, that's right. We got to we got to talk about the middle layer before we get onto the front layer. You're right. Okay, so tell us about Express. That's right. I forgot. Oh, nicely said that way. We're kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I chose Express and Node. Um, again, it's very natural, right? Like I do a lot of JavaScript writing, so it's very natural to just write stuff in Node. I have to write a lot of utilities in Node, so writing a server in Node is great. Again, I'm not the most experienced. Like I've, I haven't built an Express app over 10,000 lines of code, certainly. Uh, I never, I don't think I've ever built anything that large. So it's a, somewhat, it's a choice of, hey, it's comfortable and familiar to me and it's quick to put together and I can throw it up on Heroku, uh, which, you know, gives me free hosting. So I've got a free Mongo database with Mongo uh, Cloud. I've got uh, free middle tier hosting with Heroku and all those things were attractive to putting together a small little project like this. Like this. Yeah. So, so what kinds of things are you doing in, in Express? Uh, clearly, you're going to field the, uh, the the data requests. Yeah. But, but anything else? Or is it anything other than a web API for data? Do you got some business process back there? Anything? Almost nothing. No, really. It's mostly just translation of the data calls or like, you know, authentication, of course. Mm -hmm. That would be the other big piece. But mostly it's the front end is going to send a request to the middle tier. The middle tier will potentially it'll really break that up and say, all right, that has to go out to these four collections, make the rights, and then send back a and some kind of acknowledgement, the right happened, everything's great. So it's gonna be a very relatively thin layer, relatively thin middle tier. And your validation logic, if you had it. Validation logic, of course, yes, <clears throat> absolutely validation But logic. are you using it? <clears throat> some people use Express also because it has a page engine and all that stuff. Yeah. And you don't, you, don't, you don't need any nope. of that because you're an Angular app, right? Are you serving the Angular assets, I mean, the, the front end client assets out of Express as well? Yeah, so that's kind of a funny story as well. So I decided to use the CLI, the Angular CLI for this. And by default, it's all Webpack and it uses the Webpack dev server to serve up the pages. Mm. You don't have to use their dev server to serve up the pages. You can use your own server, but it's just very natural. You can just type in ng serve and then it starts going. But I've got my Express web app that has to handle the data calls, right? Mm -hmm. So wait a second, I've got... Uh, Webpack Dev Express just serving up my pages, and when I make a call in there, it doesn't know about, it doesn't have the Node application running inside of Webpack. The Node application's got to be running on its own process. So thankfully, there is this whole um, 
proxy system built into Webpack's dev server that the CLI, the Angular CLI re-exposes. So I can say, hey, whenever I make a request to anything that starts with slash API, don't service it yourself, proxy it over to this port. So I have my express server running, like this is for dev only. My express server is running on port like 8081, whereas by default, uh, Webpack runs, or the CLI launches it on port 4200. So my site I'm actually seeing in my browser is over port 4200, but when I make a request to slash API, it goes to 4200, and then it just forwards the request onto 8081, where the express server handles it and then sends it back, which is fine. You know, once I figured that out, that was fine, but then it came time to go and put this into production, Mm-hmm. And I had to go through the process of, oh, well, how does this even, like, what do I do? I, I want to get rid of this. Does my, my right now, I haven't even set up my Express to serve up my pages because Webpack dev server was serving up my pages. So how do I, what do I have to do there? And I don't know if there are other smarter answers out there. I know that there's a way to deploy to GitHub uh, pages, but I, and I actually tried that. It ended up bombing. It ended up actually causing a huge, huge problem for me because somehow during that process, it's a another uh, plugin somebody wrote. Uh, I'm not sure if Igor wrote it himself or not. I th- think he may have, but anyway, it actually like cleans out some of your directories. And I, it was right in the middle, and it bought, it aired out, so it had deleted a bunch of my files. And I thought it was, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So I, I was like, oh crap, I, I'm gonna have to just start over. So I deleted the whole entire directory, not f- oh. forgetting the fact that I hadn't pushed my Git, my changes to GitHub oh. in the last three days. Oh, oh man, oh, man. So, so, so why? All right, children, everybody at home. Let's let's figure out all the things that Joe did wrong. <laughs> Step one: wait three days before checking in your changes. Yeah. <laughs> At least have a like a backup stash or something. No, well, that's even wrong. You got it. Like it's <laughs> Everything is in that local in. .git directory. I deleted the the folder, oh. so the .git directory got deleted. Um, so was it you check your ref log? Was it in your ref log? No, 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 no. I I don't know. I I didn't try checking my ref log. I'm on Windows using a Bash shell. And I did, you know, uh, rm-rf, the directory. And so I checked oh, the yeah, trash. It's gone. It's, there. Gone. it's gone. It's gone. Thankfully, there's a little ad for Backblaze. I happen to be using Backblaze backup on this machine. Right? It's like five bucks a month, and it backs up everything, 100%. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know. I've got three terabytes or something of storage on this particular. OK, book. so like I've always like been really hesitant about putting repos in things that sync, like Dropbox or Backblaze. Like, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it? I'm always afraid it's going to mess up like some files or like miss sync and then jack up my dev environment or something. Like, so Dropbox is a two way sync. And yeah, I'd be a little nervous about that depending on what I was doing. Backblaze is one way, it just reads from your computer and then takes it up to its server. It, there's no two way sync. Backblaze mm. does not do sync. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. But it's also even cooler because it keeps versions, right? Like, I think it keeps like a version every day for a few months, and then it just has the most recent version for like a long time. So it's really cool. It took a while, you know, I had to go on there, but I could pick just this. I said, it's just this one directory that I'm missing. Give me the last version you backed up, which was, you know, before the last few hours. It was like in the middle of the night, and it, and it created a zip file for me, and I was able to download it. And so backblaze to the rescue, fix that. Okay, problem. so you didn't have to rewrite. So going back to I'm trying to get to production and how am I going to serve my pages, right? So I, the GitHub pages thing was a bust for me. It aired out. I didn't, couldn't figure out how it was going to work. So I just decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm on a deploy to Heroku, right? And so I'm going to get my express server to serve up my web pages. So I, I added onto the express server, the ability to serve up static pages out of a specific directory. Mm-hmm. And then I used the CLI's build command and you did ng build and it produces a whole 
version of your entire application into this DIST directory. And then I copied my server into that directory and just to test it, right? Can you, if I launch the express server and run it, are you serving up the actual application correctly? And it was. And then that became my deliverable to send over to Heroku. The problem with Heroku is it works out of GitHub, right? So it wants to check out every my development version and serve that up. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted just the DIST directory. So my solution was really low tech. I ended up creating a new GitHub repository that I would mm -hmm. just copy these assets into and just for this one directory. And then that's how I would deploy to Heroku. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. That I would just copy these assets into and just for this one directory, and then that's how I would deploy to Heroku. That's, uh, have been there, have done that. And for the folks at home, by the way, the ability to turn an Express server in from a web API into something that serves static pages is like two or three lines, right? Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. Your entire, I'll bet your entire um, Express uh, code is possibly one file of less than 100 lines. It would be if I had written it all from scratch. I ended up copying and pasting some other stuff, so it's it's... I, I factored it out into a bunch of small files, and I, it has more capability than I'm using right now. But yes, it's rough. I'm utilizing actually probably 100 lines of code uh, of the Express application. Just, just so folks at home who have never done Mean or done um, uh, Express realize that that all these decisions we're talking about are decisions, but the actual code involved tiny. is not that it's tiny. Both for whatever you had to do to support Mongo, there is pretty small, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a couple of lines of code in the file somewhere, and uh, just a few, you know relatively few lines of Express, and and you've covered the essence of what your application requires, right? Yeah, yeah, it's really uh, on the Node side for sure. Small number of lines of code. I'll have a you know, hundred times more lines of code in Angular than I will on Node, for sure. So, and I was using, I also used Mongoose, the um, oh, object, the ORM mapper for Mongo. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I like that a lot better. <laughs> I love I'm, the mongoose. I'm laughing because uh, Joe, it's a pretty small data model, and I have to throw <laughs> schema and all that. But why not, right? You know, right. hit it, hit it. Well, uh, yeah, I use entity. I'll, I'll use entity framework on the Tor Heroes when it's my turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, actually, and mongoose actually makes it easier just to connect to Mongo. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Um, so I. It, it's such a small amount of overhead. I, it's been a while since I've done the entity framework. Can you can you put it together in just you know like a few lines of code? And well, no, this is Microsoft. I, I, <laughs> but I, I but I you know I mean like like you said when you know something you can bring in you can use the yeah. big guns for a small problem. I can smack a cockroach with a sledgehammer as well as the next guy. <laughs> Right. I have uh, never heard that reference that way. That's 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 a new one for the books. <laughs> it does a little so damage far. to the floor. My opinion so far is the CLI's story of going to production is not well told, mm. right? Not enough people have been talking about, I built a CLI app and here's how I got it to production, right? Well, I think we're going to have to do something about that. Yeah. So, hey, at ng-conf, which will be probably a couple weeks after this goes live, uh, we've got a workshop that Jeff uh, Cross and Victor Savkin are giving on taking Angular production. And I don't know if they'll cover these particular issues that I've had. Hopefully they would, but there is a whole workshop, an all-day workshop on going to production. Well, you should tell them your story so that they can include it in their workshop. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely should. Absolutely should.
I think Alyssa's question is now germane. <laughs> That's a funny word, uh, germane. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, so, I'd like to know about the CSSs, please. Ah, yeah. The front, front end. <laughs> yeah, so that was like, that's actually probably the thing that I've been futzing around with the most is just trying to get it to look at least just reasonable. Like, I don't have it designed, right? I just wanted it to not look stupid. <laughs> uh, so, my old standby was always to use Bootstrap. I'm comfortable with Bootstrap, I've used it a ton. And it's really, you know, it has all the pieces together, right? Nice looking uh, input controls, grid systems, nav elements, right? Lots of cool stuff. I wish you could but, see the face I was giving you right now. Oh, really? <laughs> it's kind of like your like weak old milk that's been sitting in the sun. <laughs> you're, you're turning your nose up. Really? You're a bootstrap yes. hater. Bootstrap My, let's just put it this way: the talk I'm giving at NGConf this year is giving bootstrap the boot. Well, that's right. That's a great, great talk title. <laughs> Anyways, what, what, continue. What, sh what should I... he have done? What should he have done? What's Joe doing wrong now? Well, let's be mean I... to Joe. It just hurts so much to use Bootstrap because of the experiences I've had in needing to overwrite it or coming across something and why is this behaving this way? And after so much debugging, it all comes down to, oh, it's Bootstrap again. And, and so, right. you know, a Bootstrap is great for, like he was saying, if it covers all of your needs, but the majority of projects I've worked on, it doesn't. And when you hit that wall of now we need to create this custom blah, 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 mm. it really starts messing everything up. As soon as you have to write custom components or custom styles, it really starts messing things up. And so if, you know, like he's saying, if, hey, really all I need is like a simple grid system and buttons, you're good to go with Bootstrap. Like, why not? Right. But it, in my experience, every project has always expanded beyond that point, And it is more painful to remove Bootstrap than to just write it. Like, it's kind of like one of those things just like rip the bandaid off, write the styles. But it, it can be hard if you don't have any, like he was also saying, I don't have any design direction or like, I just don't want it to look bad, but I don't know what good looks like. And I have ran across that too. So what, where'd you end up with Joe? So I didn't want to use, what I wanted to do was stay up to date, right? Like I wanted to use material. So mm, I, I went yeah. over and grabbed uh, the material for Angular 2 and started utilizing that. So I had this input form. There's like really two pages. One's an input form, one's a display form. So I started with the input form and put, put material together, which is really easy to get it to uh, into the application. It was a really small amount of effort and started putting the input uh, controls together. And then I was like, well, my navigation is stinky. It's just a couple of anchor tags lined up together. So let's fix that. So I went over to Angular Material 2 and I guess it's, now it's just called Angular Material and said, all right, well, where's the navigation controls, you know, styles or, you know, fix up and there isn't any. Mm. Uh, there, <laughs> not only is there not that, there isn't a whole bunch of lots of things. And I went over, I thought, boy, I thought there was more. And I, so I, during the process, I actually opened up the uh, material for Angular 1 and it has a ton of stuff, right? Like it would have solved all my problems, but the Angular 2 is so far behind Angular uh, one's material project right now, as far as the number of assets that it has produced, that it's just no comparison. And so for me, it was like, I could use these controls, but it's the whole rest of it, my application. So it's nice for the input controls, but even then it only has a very small set of input controls. Mm. So it just, I ended up tearing that out and saying, well, I want to use bootstrap, which by itself ended up being an entirely new fight to get bootstrap to work because the, <laughs> of the way that angular two is not just scripts on a page, right? Like Bootstrap requires jQuery in order to use, like get dropdowns to work. And so in the old Angular one, you just throw the jQuery script tag on your page. And then right after that, the Angular script tag on your page and the Angular CSS would be referenced, or sorry, the Bootstrap CSS would be referenced up in the head somewhere. And that was it. 
And that's not how it works for Angular 2. You can't just do those things. There, it breaks things when you do that. Does it break when you throw so jQuery on you... the index page? Yeah. Yeah. Really? What, is, what, what does it do? There's some usage of this menu call Mattis menu or Metis menu that breaks. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but when I did that, things were broken. So did so, you figure out a way to get Bootstrap yeah. working? Yeah, somebody has this project they put together called ng2-bootstrap. Again, an unfortunately named name now that we've renamed everything. Uh, <laughs> but they handle all of the figuring out jQuery, loading jQuery at the right point, And the, they've done this kind of extra step, which I'm not really 100% sure I agree with, but they have like a whole bunch of um, imports, uh, modules that you would import. So if you wanted to use, say, their uh, date picker, the date picker from uh, Bootstrap, then there's actually a date picker module that you import, and then you import it into your Angular 2 module, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, don't get confused by my use of the two different kinds of modules, right? The ES6 module you have to import, right? And then your Angular 2 module also has an import and you throw it into there. And at, then at that point, you actually can use a custom tag. You can use like this date picker tag rather than a div with a style of date picker, mm -hmm. right? I, I, use, I think I was doing a dropdown. So they actually so have a dropdown tag. So they created components. They created a whole bunch of components and directives mm -hmm. for all of this, mm -hmm. um, which is really nice. But I thought it was might be a little bit of overkill. So especially since every single thing that you want to use, you have to import in separately. Right. And I quickly reached the point where I was like, meh, I'll just use you know divs with classes because I get, still get the same functionality. So and then I had an extra step that I was using a custom theme on top of Bootstrap. So I had to figure out to make sure that that worked right, and it came with its own JavaScript file, which I ended up not utilizing. But I looked inside, it was a very small file, so I hope that whatever I need from that, I, whatever I'm using, using, I don't need from that JS file because I can't, you know, I don't want to dig into ng2 bootstrap and figure out how they're loading jQuery to make sure that, because you have to load your bootstrap custom stuff after jQuery. Mm, right. And so I didn't want to try to figure that whole thing out. So I just punted on that and left that JavaScript file alone. But definitely a couple of pain points trying to put this whole thing together. So have you tested in multiple browsers? Like what browser do you commonly work with first off? Chrome. And then have you tested in Safari or? Of course um, not. Edge? What do I look like? Somebody <laughs> no, uh, I haven't. I just have had some recent experience with when you, especially when you mentioned Angular material, um, mm. there's some funky flex bugs that are, some are unreported and some are reported, but not fixed yet for mm. like Safari. And so I was just curious if you had like during your, you know, testing with Angular material and then moving over to Bootstrap, if you had been checking it out in other browsers as you go or not yet. So. No, not yet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's like something I need to do, and good call on that. It's just funny whenever somebody's like, uh, "I can't use your form," and you're like, "Why?" And you go and open it in their browser, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> oh. the form is gone." <laughs> right. it <really> is gone. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the reasons that people look to using control libraries like a Material or something, because they're counting on the library vendor. To spending all that time, spend all that time, and you know, firing up those servers that check out every time you commit, it goes and checks it out against all those other. I'm uh, just curious. Targets. Is it like odd that like for the majority of the work that I do, it it's not covered in these type of libraries? Like it, uh, like for you guys, like does Bootstrap uh, have everything you need? Um, no. Well, if you're less than ten thousand lines of code, you're throwing together a simple demo. Absolutely, it should. It probably has most of what you need. But no, when you're talking about like a big app. Uh, where you're going to be working on it for months, if not years. No, it's not going to have those pieces. You're okay. going to be writing your own stuff for sure. 
And so you're probably going to have, you need to have like a designer on staff and, and a CSS expert that can, either the designer himself or a CSS expert that can translate the designs into the correct CSS. And then somebody, I mean, CSS is not, it's by itself a simple thing. So you got to be thinking through the maintainability of your CSS, right? Mm. And using I think it depends like, a lot on the application. If you've got a relatively few metaphors that are repeated across a large app, which is typical of an enterprise app, you know, um, mm. then it doesn't have to be too bad. Uh, you know, and like I would say that that you know, in our a lot of our business clients uh, fit that profile, um, where the emphasis is uh, more on you know relatively simple user interaction patterns done over and over again over a very large data model. Yeah, line of business apps, right? Like it's internal usage. So it, the you're not going to spend as much time and effort on the CSS and on the design. It needs to look nice. It needs to yep. work really well. But you're not thinking, hey, um, we, we're going to have a lot of various users from various backgrounds uh, using, using the site. So the design maybe, maybe gets less attention over the functionality, which right. is not to say that's bad by any means. No, but, but then we're, we're not trying to create this, you know, joyful, um, uh, entertaining experience for them because yeah. you're not trying to sell anything. No, they're not there to buy. They're not there to entertain. They're there to get get her done, and that lowers the bar. So this is an answer I'm giving to Alyssa's question. Um, it's no place to build to craft. That's no way to craft a uh, a consumer facing, um, joyful, entertaining experience. Uh, and one has to know which things you need. But for the sort of the blocking and tackling of applications, um, it, you don't need a big kit to get it, to make it work. I think I think it's just so funny because I guess because of how much like front ends like CSS like designing experience I have. Um, to me, like not even looking at like a joyful, entertaining like entertaining experience, looking at like something like it's like super ugly, super fast. It's only for internal use. I look at trying to learn like angular material and exactly what they're using. Cause I was going through the weeds of like, I ended up having to go to the documentation and look at what CSS they were using because it's basically, it's like any framework or any library, right? It's layering on top of something that I'm already really good at. Like if you tell me I need it to look like this, I'm like, cool, I know exactly what I need to do to make that happen. So it's even harder for me then to be like, okay, how do I make that happen inside of this library's like rules and yeah. like, methods and stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think that's where the hard part is because it's even with super simple stuff, I'm like, okay, awesome. Here's the three lines you need. And it, it ends up, you know, being even shorter than what, you know, a lot of libraries use because whether they're out of date or they're using prefixes that are no longer needed or whatever. So um, but I guess I could see that if people aren't in their day-to-day -day constantly doing UI and UX stuff that you wouldn't be there. So. No, I know exactly what, uh, exactly what you're talking about because I happen to be doing a little material project at the moment and, and I'm using their navigation panel and stuff. Mm. And, and I wanted to animate when you opened a header and it would drop down some new submenu choices. And it's like, oh, I wonder how you do that. Jeez, I don't know. And what are their class <laughs> names? And you got to dig around and, and you end up falling back, falling back to trying to, to, to we, you know, in the short run, just to get her done, ro rolling back to standard uh, classes and transitions. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, you say, well, what did that, what did uh, material do for me in the first place? And to be honest, what it did is it, it created the containers and some of the basic structure that I would then was going in and tweaking. Uh, right. I don't know what the heck, but I really don't like, unlike you, I don't know what the heck I'm doing in there. So it, it can be hours, 
of throwing darts at a dartboard that's a long ways away and in the dark and maybe it lands and maybe it it's doesn't. so funny because that's whenever you guys talk about like you were talking about the data and modeling it and i was just like oh god like to me that's the that's where my hours are spent is whenever because i'm technically full stack so whenever i do get tasks that are on like farther back where it deals with data and things like that i'm just like can i just go build things and not do this because it's just my i don't know my brain doesn't work that way so i i feel like it definitely is like a almost an array of things that people are good at and you guys are super experts on the farther back end it feels like right but we're we're like we're blind when it comes to the css stuff at least i am <laughs> yes so and, Alyssa. <laughs> yes so you got the css chops right do you, are you um a big fan of like css modules and creating like these non-global css uh, systems Ooh, trick question. Ooh, I know where this is coming from. <laughs> Wait, can I know where it's coming from before I answer? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Go ahead, go um, ahead. I want to hear it. Okay, so when you're saying non-global, are you talking about basically styling every page individually, kind of thing? Well, or... so we are seeing with React and now Angular mm -hmm. two, the ability to write styles that are absolutely scoped to a single component. Right. Right. And sometimes not even that component's children. Okay? Right. Yes. And that's this is becoming a very popular way mm -hmm. um, to deal with CSS because of the cascading nature of CSS is often uh, more problem than benefit. In fact, I would it say it sounds kind of dangerous, actually, because well, it just sounds like because one thing that I, when I'm writing styles that I constantly go back to is this map in my head of how I've currently like built our kind of like our grid system and how I've currently built our base styles. And if you're doing what you're suggesting as far as like for each component or even each child element, then that sounds like the opposite of reusable, right? Like it wouldn't, at least for me, I try to make everything as global as possible. And then when I get to a spe specific situation where I'm like, I only need this to behave or look like this right here, that's whenever you break out the custom style sheet. But that's just how I've been doing it. I don't, I okay, but it's... certainly you've encountered those problems where a cascading style has screwed everything up of your ability to customize the styles somewhere. Um, only when Bootstrap is involved. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I have a, and anytime I do a peer review, I'm kind of a stickler about no importance. So, you know, the pound important. Um, and oh, yeah, so if yeah. you, if anybody ever has to do that, I talk to him and I go, why, why are you doing that? Why do you hey, have if, to do that? If I don't have Let's 10 of those, <laughs> if I don't have 10 of those in my code, I'm not trying. <laughs> so if you, if you can't get specific enough in your like component or in, you know, your child style sheet, if you can't get specific enough to override, um, the global styles, then either your global styles are too specific or something is getting in the way, some other library that you're not encountering, right? And so I, at that point, I either reevaluate how my specificity on the global end so that I can, you know, without nesting too far, make it happen, or I go, why the hell are we still using Bootstrap, right? Like, so I, that's that's where I've encountered that struggle, at least. What are you saying, though? Are you saying that you suggest using this way of doing things, or? Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but I've certainly dealt with, I had a job for like six months where I dealt with likely the most complex CSS system you can imagine. <laughs> it was a white labeled application, right? So they were constantly selling this out to new clients mm -hmm. and they would customize the application to make it look exactly like it was the booking reservation system, right? So the, the client already has an existing application, but when you click like book now, it would take you to our website, but it was white labeled to like, we would actually have to produce pixel perfect 
re-representation of their original website. Like, but meanwhile, okay, so isn't that we have, a, what, isn't it basically a custom custom site at that point for each client? Well, yes, but if you do it that way, then you're just killing your profit margins, right? So uh, you wanted to make it look like it, but like think of all like you know you're looking at a list of, a listing of uh, all your options to book, right? And the text that goes along with them. We might change the fonts, but we want all the lines that are around there and the overall design to really be ours. And we just want to change some colors in that stuff. Right, oh, but we want the headers to match okay. theirs. Right, the, the whole Chrome to match their website, but so the interior you have like localized style sheets per yes. user or client. So okay, yeah. Not yeah. only were we that using cascading sense. style sheets that would cascade their sales down, but we would also use a file system cascading where if we authored a file in a specific directory, it would when we deployed it would overwrite the ge the generic the base file sure. CSS yes. file. Yes. It was yeah. It was quite quite clear. Wow. But anyway. How would dealing you do that with things with too. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was a nightmare. But you know, these CSS modules they take care of problems like dead code elimination, right? Like, there's no way to really know that a style can be cleaned up and deleted, and there's certainly nothing that goes around and tells you that. You got to start doing search and you know, mass search through all your files for. Well, am I using this this class oh, name? Well, yeah, yeah, I am. I am using the class name, but I may not be using the style because am I using this class name as a child as a, an li that's a child of a div? You know, whatever your selector is, right? Yeah. And so you end up with these problems. Uh, so these, you know, modules not um, and granted the way the Angular 2's module CSS modularization works, they, they're not telling you, hey, reinvent the wheel every time. But, um, you know, you might go and st specify the styles of your common button at some high level CSS style sheet in a typical application. But what, now with React or with Angular 2, you can say, hey, I've actually just got this button component. And it's got its own style. So everywhere I use that button component, the styles come along with it. Right. And they're scoped such that I create a different button and I don't have to worry about the styles. No, and I love, love, love it for things like that. And we're actually right now the main project for our, like the Weave app is we're like selling it to more and more clients. So we're actually adding in like if this user, this header, if this user, this header, and we're getting to custom styles even. So I'm starting to learn to love it for those reasons. But before this point, I've only been like, you know, like there's admin and then there's users, right? So it, I never really had a reason, but now that you're bringing up this example, I, I do like it for that. And especially if you're breaking it out into, it's hard because when you say component, like, okay, a button component that has its own custom styles makes perfect logical sense. It's like, it's all together, you know, like what the button is supposed to look like, and then you can add on to it if you need to. But um, sometimes in projects I've worked on before, it's more like every page is kind of its own component and so then right. if you were to give every page its own custom styles then you're never actually pointing back up to a global anything and right. the danger there is just that uh, you can lose like you you lose branding points right like if you're never if you're not always uh, careful with everything's pointing back up to the same uh, look and feel so i think that's the only danger in that but if you're using like you're saying where it's it's this button and this is our button and it's styled this way then that sounds more accurate and correct so <laughs> Well, I want to wrap this up, but I want to ask really quickly then, Ward, you know, are you mm. finding yourself more using the style sheets and styles scoped to just a component? Well, uh, I'm, you know, my, my instinct was to go with just a broad global styles and then, and not have them at every component level. And I don't have them at every component level, but I can, but I must say that when I have some components that are doing things that only they need to do and they only need their styles. And that is causing me to have local um, uh, a component style sheet for that component. Um, 
And that leads to something else I was going to ask you about, whether you had done any shadow piercing, um, because that's something I've had to do. Um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not making a, a fetish out of uh, a separate style sheet for each component, which I think is the direction. Actually, the CLI by default, I think, creates a, a style sheet per component. And I just, I just started deleting them. But, but I'm open to the fact that a particular component might have styles that only make sense for it for it and then i then i use it yes cool how about you is that kind of about, where you're coming yeah, about the same about the same uh so i'm not i'm not making a, like i said i'm not making a fetish out of it which it seemed to me people were doing and they were saying you know you're you're crazy if you don't have a style sheet for each component <laughs> that has you know tells it exactly and it insulates it from the dangers that you were describing and i'm sitting there and saying yeah but what about consistency across the site how do i obtain that and i don't have a good answer for, 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 for that trade-off yet right Yep. I hear you. All right. Anything else? Was there anything else about your front end that's got you? I mean, are you doing any routing? Are you doing anything uh, tricky up there that you want to talk No. About? I would say the, the other thing that I encountered, this is really kind of my first real production foray into an Angular 2 app. I've written a lot of demos. This is my first attempt. At, I've got to write some real production code here, right? I would say the other thing that I'm finding interesting is wanting to put my component code, my HTML, and my custom CSS styles all together in the same file, not even in you know adjacent files of the same name, but like literally in the same file and mm -hmm. finding that VS code isn't helping me enough with that. It won't treat my multi-line you know, ES6 string as an HTML block. I can get an add-in that will give me the Emmet, you know, like the Zen coding, and I can get one that will call, hi, syntax highlight it, but it's still not the same thing as authoring in an HTML file. Yeah. But I want myself. I find myself wanting to do that more and more, and then only splitting them out into separate files when the HTML gets too big. Have right. you tried the uh, language service, the new Angular language service that's in beta? I don't know. No, I have not. Oh, you got to give that a go. Um, it's coming. It's coming soon uh, as a full release. But it's very nice, uh, and it works both for inline templates and for templates that are in separate HTML files. It tells you, A, it gives you a lot of feedback on whether you're getting the HTML right, which is kind of what you're asking about for inline. Um, but it, uh, it has an awareness of the things that you're binding to. So you get IntelliSense for when you're saying, I want to bind to this property of the component. And what the heck is that property? Oh, and it tells me. So it's Worth. an HTML language service for VS Code? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah, for, for it works for TypeScript. Uh, code, but we're all writing in TypeScript, so it's for Angular, right. uh, and it understands the relationship between your templates and your components. And it's that a plugin so cool. for VS Code, right? It's a plugin for VS Code. It, it, uh, the language service is designed so that you could uh, use it in any With other ID any as well. Any IDE, yeah. yeah. So the language service by itself is the underlying service that enables this, but then you're going to need an IDE plugin to take advantage of it. Is that right? Cor correct. Um, but it leverages the same strategies that uh, other, um, you know, that your IDE is probably already doing. So, for example, the, vis the, the one for VS Code, you know, there, it, there's already a feedback mechanism to tell you when there are errors and tool tips and things like that. And it can just, um, you know, it just seems to naturally plug into that. I mean, I haven't tried to write one, but I, uh, but, but people who write IDEs would know, know how to do this. Right. Well, I'm going to give that a try. Yeah, it's definitely worth a, um, uh, kicking around. Uh, I like it and John likes it. Um, we've been playing with it. Cool. So, um, so there you go, folks. That's, that's what it's like to confront the real world with all this new stuff. And he's only a fifth of the way through, so we're going to have to call him back. And say, <laughs> four more times, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. How's the other four fifths go? Right. 
Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out at jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. How the other forfeits go? Right. All right. Well, should we do picks? Let's do it. All right. Start with, start with Alyssa. Alyssa, so what are your picks? I, I don't have any this week. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I am pickless and at 1%, so I will talk to you guys later. I have a pick for you. It's called an external battery for your phone. I know. Well, the problem with that is that you can't then, because I have a 6 Plus, you can't plug in a battery and have headphones in. So let's all identify the things Alyssa did wrong. <laughs> Buying a 6 Plus is the number one thing she did wrong. Oh. Wait a second. I'm sure that Apple will gladly sell you a $50 adapter. I have Wait, one of those too. That is a what? problem, isn't it? Yeah, you're it? supposed to use like two yeah, things you, into your phone. You're supposed to use there's Bluetooth. There's no way to have both things. I don't know. Is they? they oh, they yeah, you're right. In. I'm supposed to probably be using Bluetooth. That's right. Yeah, I'm. I miss my aux port. So my shout out this week is to aux ports around the world. I miss you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, I wonder if they sell lightning cable splitters. Anyway, uh, Joe, what are your picks? Okay, uh, let's see here. I want to pick Mongo uh, Cloud. It's a nice little service that has a free version, so you can put a little Mongo database up out in the cloud, talk to it, and not have to pay any money right off the bat. Um, so I found that to be quite easy to get up and running, and uh, it didn't take me too long to figure out how to connect to it with Node. So I'll definitely pick that. Um, I also want to pick the workshop that John, Papa, and Dan Wallin and I are doing in Raleigh, North Carolina. I think by the time that this goes live, we will have already been done, but we are doing more. I think the next one is going to be in Anaheim. So if you hit topcoders.io, it'll give you the list of the workshops that we're doing. So having a lot of fun doing that. And uh, those are my picks. All right, Ward, what are your picks? Well, I have a curious pick. You know, Tracy was here with us a couple of shows ago, and she talked about the um, sous vide cooker that she got. And so I had to go get one. Uh, the oh, my goodness. I, you actually bought one? Oh, gosh, so yes. And uh, Julie. We call her Julie. Um, it's J-O-U-L-E. And um, uh, so I've tried it on a few things. And I have to say, it's done really well. Uh, with those things, but my wife is complete skeptic because this involves putting things in plastic and putting them in hot water. And and, um, <laughs> uh, and, and looking at the recipes, is, like I, I, so I'm I'm on the fence. I'm going to keep trying it because the pork chop was amazing. Because she doesn't eat meat, doesn't help. Uh, but it, it was amazing, but it did take longer. And I'm looking at this thing, is saying, uh, well, first of all, it's really cool because you 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 control it with your app. So I'm sitting there cooking, I'm controlling the device with my iPhone and it's got um, videos that are telling me how to do it and all that stuff. So it, you know, for a, a gadget weenie, this is definitely right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> 
But then, you know, it, and then it keeps teasing you. So you want to have perfect bacon? Well, who doesn't want to have perfect bacon? I didn't think my bacon was so bad before, but sure. Uh, and then it's talking about, oh, you know, you don't want that dried. I never really had a problem with dried bacon. But I'm following along, and then it wants me to cook them for eight hours. In Wait, no Julie. way. Wait, and then when you're done, you're not done, because then you've got to... Put out, bring out the pan and heat it for five minutes and throw the bacon in and uh, and give it two minutes in the pan. Now, last time I cooked bacon, it was five. It was a five-minute operation in the pan, and I've got two <laughs> minutes in the pan anyway. The pan's going to get dirty. Like, like, what is this going to do for me after the eight hours in the water? That's planning ahead. That's not me. But I know this is about picks. I'm still picking it, but I'm saying – like with any technology, you can go nuts. And I have a feeling that relying on Julie to do my bacon is just crazy. <laughs> so everything but the bacon. Uh, but I, you know I'm going to try it. You know I'm going to find out if this bacon is better, like the best bacon I ever put in my mouth. But I, I just can't figure it out. Bacon. <laughs> that's, that's funny. All right. Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to pick is... Uh, I mentioned it before, JS Remote Conf. Um, I'm also going to be start starting accepting uh, proposals to speak at Angular Remote Conf. So if you want to speak at Angular Remote Conf, it's going to be in August this year. Um, go to angularremoteconf.com and uh, put in a talk. Um, I'm also going to pick another book that I've been reading. I've been reading a lot of business books lately. Uh, this one is called The Invisible Sales Machine. And uh, it's, it's pretty great as far as email marketing goes and just understanding... Um, how people want to get content in email. And so um, I'm probably going to be doing a lot of the stuff that it talks about, but it's pretty great book. So anyway, those are my picks. Um, and we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for listening and we'll catch y'all next week. Sweet. See ya. Woo.